Well, thank you. Uh, good to see all of you. And really, really glad uh, to have with us today my friend Andrew Peterson talk about uh, his uh, newish book, Adorning the Dark, today. And it's really cool that it's today because uh, Andrew and I have been doing a lot of stuff over the years. And I, am, I was realizing this morning that probably close to 15 years ago was when we were doing an event and you made a country music joke and it was Johnny Cash's birthday. Yeah. And so I gave you a Cash shirt that you then dutifully wore the whole next day. I still have that shirt. Tomorrow is Johnny Cash's birthday. Hey, so, all right. you know, it's just, That's uh, good. I just wanted to have the opportunity to remind you of that publicly. Say, Thank don't you. do it again. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I uh, knew we would be friends. <laughs> if you guys want to be friends, just buy me a t shirt. <laughs> well, this book that you wrote, Adorning the Dark, uh, which is different than, I mean, obviously you're a songwriter. Uh, and you've written Wingfeather Saga. Give us an update, first of all, on Wingfeather Saga. So can. the Wingfeather Saga is a four-book fantasy series that I wrote. I, I guess I, the first one came out in 08, and the last one was published probably six years ago. And um, the first two were with Waterbrook Press, which was the, the Christian division of Random House, uh, Penguin Random House. And then uh, for whatever reason, there were some changes in the publishing world and they did not publish the second two books of my planned four book series. So at that point, the Rabbit Room Press was already up and running. And so we just, it was easy to publish the second two books through this publishing house that I'm involved with. And uh, the books did well enough that Random House came to me um, last year and asked if they could buy books three and four from me. Yes. Which is like one of the more gratifying things that can happen to an author. So the fun thing is they they bought books three and four and and they're re-releasing uh, the whole series in a collector's edition hardbacks. Um, so that's like really fun to have like the New York house behind it and kind of like flinging them wide. So hopefully hopefully they will be on the shelf next to Harry Potter. Not that I have thought about the the alphabetical Rowling and Peterson. Uh, I haven't done any thinking like that. Yeah. But I have yeah. wondered where they're going to yeah. sit on the shelves. So yeah. When I'm trying to explain this book, Adorning the Dark, to people, uh, what I say is, you know, one of the things that we do is get together your house, several of us, fairly regularly, and, you know, sometimes just hang out, sometimes kind of read through T.S. Eliot as we are. And I so told somebody, this is like, when I read the galleys of this, I was like, this is like that in print. And what I mean by that is, it is you. I mean, it really does put your voice into print. And it's hard to explain to somebody, okay, this is what this book is about in one sentence, which I think is a strength of the book and a, and a good thing. If somebody said to you, what's this book and, and why should I, and whatever it is that I do, why should I read it, what would you say? I usually tell people that it's one part memoir about uh, what it's like to be a Christian who who is in a artistic vocation, Christian with an artistic vocation. Um, so it's one part memoir that kind of tells my story of, of trying to uh, be obedient to the calling that I believe that I got from God when I was about 18 years old and sorting out what that looks like over the course of 25 years or so. And it's also a lot of uh, advice, like so practical advice. And so I one of my soapboxes is that everyone is is creative. I don't like the when when we use the word creative as a as a noun and say I am a creative uh, because I think it draws a line between artistic people and non-artistic people as if to say that 
any, some of us are special and creative and other people aren't. I think pastors are creative. I think architects are creative. Scientists are creative. Homemakers are creative. We all have this image of godness in us that spills over into many things. Jonathan Rogers, my buddy, says that, uh, that you know, uh, if creativity is a pie, the arts only make up a small slice of that pie um, and not even the most important part. Like a good meal um, would, would be probably arguably more important than art. All that to say, um, what I realized over the years in thinking about my job as both a novel writer and a songwriter was that there was all this overlap between the two disciplines and that there are some huge ways that writing a novel and writing a song are different, but there are even more ways that they're the same, which then led me down the path of thinking, I bet that these principles that are the same apply to pastors and teachers and moms and dads and, and all kinds of creativity. So the book is like a meditation on what creativity looks like through the eyes of a Christian. And one of the things you talk about in here was pulling up stakes, moving to Nashville, mm -hmm. uh, working as a waiter at the Olive Garden, and uh, just kind of just kind of not knowing what was going to be in your future at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you I think you and I were talking about this, I was talking somebody about this week, about um, that little Mo Willems book, uh, Goldilocks and the Three Dinosaurs, where uh, Goldilocks uh, is in this house, which she assumes is the three bears, but it's uh, dinosaurs. Uh, and, and the moral of the story is, if you find yourself in the wrong story, leave. And I wonder if you were in a situation when you first got here, and you're kind of looking around and saying, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Why should I keep trying to do this. I mean, you look back and now and see how it all fits together, but how did you know the story was right? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I didn't, and, and as of February 2020, sometimes I still don't, you know, I'm still trying to interpret the, those things. I think what I come back to is something that Michael Card said, I mentioned this in the book, um, Michael Card's a dear friend and mentor to me, and uh, he told me one time, your community defines your calling, and um, I don't know what he meant by that exactly, but what I take it to mean <laughs> is that uh, I, th I see it as two sides of a coin. On one side, your community defines your calling because if you want to know what God has called you to, you look around at the community that you find yourself in and you ask yourself, what would it look like for me to use my gifts to lay down my life and love the people around me? And so that, in that sense, your community defines your calling. The other side of the coin to me is sometimes when you don't know what your calling is, your community helps you name it, right? And so there have been plenty of times in my, like when I was in college, I was, I, I wanted to be a songwriter. I wanted to move to Nashville, but I can kind of barely sing now. So I, my early demos are, are just the most cringeworthy things you've ever heard. Um, I was Rich Mel Did Rich Mellons think so when you well, handed him the yes, tape Yes, actually, yeah. yes. I, I've got a story about that, but um, I gave Rich Mullins my demo tape uh, at a show one time, and then he died about a year later, and I got to be friends with his... Yeah, yeah. anyway. Uh, I, got, um, the, uh, I got to be friends with his traveling partner, Mitch, years later, and I was like, hey, I met you one time. He was like, yeah, in Florida. And I was like, oh, no, you remember... And I, and I, I said, uh, I gave you guys a copy of my demo. Like, did you ever listen to it? And he was like, yeah, silence. <laughs> and I was like, really? What, did, did Rich like it? And he goes, no, he hated it. <laughs> Nothing like, you know, your, your hero um, 
Anyway, but the the truth is, if I were him listening to that, I would have hated it also. Uh, it's okay. But the, the point is, like, I, I had this, like, ambition to do music. I, I wanted to do it. I had asked God, will you let me sing about you? That was, like, in the simplest terms what I asked him whenever I kind of had my real giving of my life to Jesus when I was about 18. But I also was very suspicious of my own motives and my own pride and that whole thing. And so I was really wary of it, and I didn't know if my gifting lent itself to it. Um, but then I had enough people, enough mentors, Bible college professors, um, kind of take me aside, look me in the eye and say, we really see that this is something that God has called you to. So whenever I got kind of knocked off course, like the question is, what if you're trying to be obedient to a calling, what do you do when you hit a closed door? Do you kick the door down or is that the Lord telling you, okay, I think you, maybe you should go this other way? And I think community is the answer to that. Like you run up against something you don't know if you should kick down the door or turn turn go, or you're in the wrong story you turn to your community the church the mentors around you and you say help me understand what it is that god has me here to do and uh that's been the thing that's kept me on course the most you uh have a quote in here that i love from george mcdonald saying this as the fir tree lifts up itself with a far different need from the need of the palm tree, so does each man stand before God and lift up, lift up a different humanity to the common father. And for each, God has a different response. With every man, he has a secret, the secret of the new name. What about that resonates with you when you're talking I about creativity? I love that quote. Yeah. Um, so there's a great moment in that little passage. It's from a sermon that George MacDonald preached. And he actually has a parenthetical statement in that sermon where he says, oh God, humble and accept my speech. Like he realizes that he's, it's conjecture, but he's, he's kind of going, I, th I think this is true of the way the Lord works because he was a father. He had nine kids um, and he loved each one of those kids in their own way. Right. And uh, I was in counseling a few years ago um, because of a really tough season in my childhood. And I remember telling the counselor, like, what is wrong with me? Why is it that my brother and my sisters don't seem to have the same struggle with this season in our childhood? We were all there at the same time. And my counselor said, I could interview four different kids, and they would all describe a, from the same family, and they would all describe a completely different family, like the age that you were when you were there. So the, the point is, the way the Lord loves me is unique. It is in a, in a sense, it is he loves me very, very specifically. And what George McDonald is suggesting is that, that that is one of the things that I have to offer the world is the way the Lord loves me. And that is for the edification of my brothers and sisters. So whenever you're a songwriter or a pastor and you think I have nothing new to say, all you really have to, like when you write a love song, you don't write in generalities. You write about the first dinner you had with your wife, or you write about the particulars of why you love her. And that's how it becomes her love song, right? So our job when we're telling about our Lord and our God is to tell about the particulars. This is how he loves me. And that is for the edification of, of you, the people around you. Does that make sense? Yeah. And when, when uh, December, you're, you're doing the Behold the Lamb uh, concert at the Ryman and then all over the country, uh, about to start another uh, tour in a little bit. Is there much different in terms of, uh, you know, when you're working at Olive Garden and going over to Union University and doing your first concert with somebody? Is there, is there much different in terms of that sort of imposter syndrome? Uh, I know the answer to it is why I'm asking you back. I think it'll, it'll, uh, it'll, I think everybody yeah. grapples with it. I get that. All, the, the imposter syndrome thing is very real. I feel it right now <laughs> while I'm talking to you guys. 
and that's why I take so much comfort in, in that George McDonald passage is I go on my best days. I know that the Lord loves me like I am his beloved. And as long as I kind of move through my day, uh, remembering that I am his beloved in spite of myself, that it gives me this freedom. That reminds me there's a, a public service announcement that I have. I think it's in a footnote in there. We might have moved it to a footnote. I can't remember how it went down. But, uh, but I was just kind of like, the nice thing about writing nonfiction is that it's a chance to spout off your opinions. Um, and nobody can really stop you other than your editor. And so I, I was uh, kind of letting people know that one of the hard things about doing concerts when you're a Christian singer-songwriter is that uh, the audience doesn't always know how to love you very well from their seats. You guys who are pastors know this. That like Sometimes when, uh, when my dad used to preach at a more charismatic church every now and then, and uh, it would bring me along with him. And uh, man, I've never heard him preach like he did when there were people in the audience affirming him, right? And so it would wake up something in him uh, because he was being affirmed. So when you're a musician, if you're not a musician, you have no idea how terrifying it is to take this song that you wrote and to hold it out there, which is your heart, basically, and hold it out there and say, hey, here's what I have to say to you. And so sometimes when you end a song, if, if I'm playing in a church and there, people are listening respectfully and the last chord happens and there's like this space of like a half a second of silence. Please before, clap. Yeah. yeah, like my whole career flashes before my eyes in that half second span of time. You, no, no joke, the, the amount of voices that just leap into my mind uh, are just unbelievable. So, but then when I, every now and then I'll do a show and it'll be some really enthusiastic audience, whereas as the song's fading out, they're already thankful. And I feel this like weight come off my shoulders. Cause, and, and here's why. It's because I know I'm loved in that sense. And I realize that... It, I think that we are most ourselves when we know that we are beloved, right? And we have a chance to be that voice of God to people around us. You know, that when I was a kid, there were certain homes that I would go to where the mom liked me and other kids where I could tell the mom didn't really like me very much. Uh, but when I was in the home where I knew that they liked me, I felt like I was who I was meant to be. And I think that's the thing is like moving through my days, knowing that I'm beloved, not necessarily relying on my audience to affirm that in me, but, uh, but if I can hold on to that truth, then I feel like I am the Andrew that I want to be. That's why I'm always at your house. <laughs> so good. you get rid of me uh, like that way. Yeah. My uh, mom likes you. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> With, uh, when you think about the songs you've written, yeah. um, I told you I was going to ask you this, but, but you didn't answer it for me, and I didn't want you to uh, before now. Uh, when you think about the songs that you've written, what is the best or what is your favorite? What is the best or what is my favorite? Yeah. Those may be two different answers. Um, I can tell you what the correct answer is okay. after you okay. do, but yeah, go yeah. ahead. Take your shot at it. Well, I will say uh, as a side note that like this, one of the sweet things about my career is that it hasn't been like some one hit wonder kind of thing that happened. And I've been at this, I've been in Nashville for 23 years, I guess, and started music a few years. So it's just been this like slow burn, you know, little moments of success followed by moments of failure and like, oh, wow, that was a really great year. And oh, man, that was a really hard year and a lot of that. And uh, lots of uh, opportunities to question my sanity. Um, uh, but last year when Chris Tomlin recorded the song, Is He Worthy, which you, I don't know if you guys have heard the song, but he like when he texted me and said, I'm going to record this song and we're going to fling it out into the world. Um, I just cried. I was so thankful um, because he has an audience that is that I don't have. And, you know, as a little uh, uh, side note, when you write a song, you want people to hear it. 
you know, like I, I, I don't want to hide them under a bushel. So if there's a chance for a song to go high and high and whatever the phrase is, um, you're excited about it. But to seeing the way he championed the song and then now people sing it in churches, um, I think 20 years ago, I would have, I would have um, handled that very differently. I would have been thought I was really cool. I would have been like, yeah, well, of course. Why would they not sing my songs? Because they're so awesome. But after 20 years of, of varied success and failure, like you're old enough, grown up enough to kind of go, that does not change a thing about who I am and Jesus. Um, it's just fun. It allows you to enjoy it for what it is, which is just a fun little affirmation on the journey. So the point is, I will probably have to sing Is He Worthy every night of my life for the rest of my life. And uh, I am thrilled about that. Like the song is so such a summary of what I think the rest of my music has been trying to say over the last 20 years, which is to point people to Christ and the new creation and uh, give voice to that longing. Um, that said, that's not my answer. Uh, my answer is a song called Don't You Want to Thank Someone, which is about nine minutes long on the record, which means that I almost never get to play it live. And so uh, when I do get to play it live, it's very special. But that song says what I meant to say the most. And I can quote it to you if you want. Go ahead. I can give you a, a couple lines. Yeah. The, my, the, uh, oh, should I do this? I don't know if I should. So the, the, really quick, the, the, the bridge of the song says, I'm forgetting it. I'm, t I'm t terrified right now. If you're wanting me to sing it, I will, and we'll make a memory. I'll but. just say the last, the last <laughs> verse of the song says, uh, and the when the world is new again, and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and then redeemed by love. Um, that's kind of the, the, the sense that I have been able to make of my own brokenness is that Christ's wounds, uh, Christ is more glorious because of his wounds than he would have been without them. And I think that's true of the, our lives. That is a great song. You've written a lot of great songs. The best <laughs> uh, is a song, in my view, is a song called Pillar of Fire. Oh, that's wow, my favorite you. one. I thank mean, you. and because uh, I say Mississippi in it. Yeah, but it's Probably a river, is. so yeah. that's close enough. But uh, but still, but it's uh, that that's that's my favorite. But Thank there, you. There's there's tons of. You talk about in this book about sort of when you're you're speaking to your audience, and I think anybody in this room is doing that, no matter what it is that God's called them to do. And you talk about sort of um, thinking about that in terms of a dinner party. Uh, what what does that look like? Yeah. So Yo-Yo Ma, the great cellist. Um, had stage fright. I read this article about him. I, I, I was so shocked to hear that, that he's like one of the great musicians on the planet right now and struggled with anxiety and, and stage fright. And uh, the article that I read about it talked about the turn that happened in his own mind was that he realized one day that he, he didn't have anxiety or stage fright when he hosted a dinner party at his house. Uh, he knew his role. He knew that his job was to make his guests feel comfortable and to love them well when they were in his home, you know, and kind of lead the party in that way. And he said that when he began to think of his concerts as a dinner party that he was hosting, that the stage fright went away. So basically, uh, d when you're doing a concert, you are you have a chance to love the people in the audience. The thing is not about you and making yourself feel awesome. The thing is about how do I 
love the people from the stage as well as I can. So uh, I think that the principle in the chapter was about serving the audience and that art as self-expression is a dead end, but art as a way of loving as Christ loved us is, is a way of, uh, a way of life. And so I think that that change when I was a young man, I think I probably would have been more interested in the audience's perception of me. And I would have seen this, this whole concert thing as a chance to, as a kind of therapy for myself, you know? So I, I know that I bled on the audience uh, too much when I was younger, um, which isn't helpful to anybody. Um, but instead, I've since learned that, like, if I've got, if I've got problems, then that's, the stage isn't the place to work those problems out. Um, I've got church and friends and that kind of thing. Um, but when it comes to my role when I'm standing on the stage, my role is to find a way to use my gifts to love the people that are sitting out there as well as I can. And so in that sense, it's like a dinner party. You've got some massively gifted kids and uh, gifted in all sorts of ways. And I, I, I wonder about the parents in the room today uh, when they have a, a kid who's gifted in some way or other, um, and maybe it's a way different than, than they are. Uh, how would you... How would you um, advise them to help cultivate that and to encourage your child and, and so forth? Well, I'm, uh, for whatever reason, the thing that my brain latched onto your, in your question was the idea that the, you, your kids may be gifted in a way that you are not. Um, guess what? They all are. I grew up in a, my dad was a pastor and there are four kids in the family. I was the only one who was really musical. My brother is a writer, but um, but I was the one who was the music and drawing kind of nerd, and uh, my parents fostered that pretty well. You know, they like they they supported it, they they indulged it more than anything else. Um, but back then, there wasn't a real context in our church for seeing those gifts as a potential ministry, right? Like uh, a love of comic books and Steven Spielberg movies and Tom Petty music uh, was kind of nice and all, but if you want to be in the ministry you need to be a missionary or a pastor, right? And so we have grown up to, in a culture where our kids have seen here in Nashville lots of, a, a very a broad array of kinds of ministry and uses of gift and people who aren't even technically in the ministry who still see their uh, the gifting that they've been given as a, as a ministry. And so, uh, yeah, our kids are, are all kind of grown up with this integrated uh, imagination when it comes to their gifting and what it means to use it in the context of the church um, and the kingdom. So I guess I would just say that uh, one of the things that I found myself longing for when I was a kid was for my parents to go, wow, how do you do that? Um, there's something about the, I've never really said this in front of people before. Um, it was such a delight to me when as a kid who grew up drawing, I wanted to draw Batman comics when I was in high school. I wrote a letter of intention to DC, no joke. Uh, uh, when my son Aiden began to draw, I supplied him with art supplies and like kind of kicked him off and helped him to learn to do this stuff. Um, and he was probably 12 when he passed me in his ability. And I was just like sat there watching him go. And, and now when I talk to him, I find myself, he's an animation major at Lipscomb University. And I find myself just picking his brain, like teach me, help me know how to, how to shade in this way. I'm trying to learn to draw trees. Can you help me learn to draw trees? Um, and I think there's something really sweet about 
not only my genuine curiosity and my genuine awe that the Lord has given him this gift, but also it's, it's, it's affirming him and his calling and what he's doing. And so I think that's what I would say, like as often as possible, be amazed by your children. <laughs> I think a lot about a section that you have in here about don't write bad songs. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell us what that's about so, and what you learned from that? So Andy Gullihorn is a dear friend and one of the best songwriters. Any Andy Gullihorn fans in here? Okay. He's, he's amazing. And he and I were doing a tour together. It was probably on the Christmas tour. And I was, <laughs> I was in the like autograph line after the show. And this young woman came up to me and she said, hey, will you sign my CD? And I was like, oh, sure. And I, and I looked at it and I had already signed it. And she, she was like, yeah, I actually came to your show 10 years ago and asked you to sign your CD and I told you that I was a songwriter and asked you to write down any advice that you had. And I just immediately went, oh no. Like remembering what I was like even 10 years ago, I was just like, I'm so sorry, what did I say? And she turned the, the CD around and showed me that I had written, um, don't write bad songs, Andrew Peterson. And I was like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm, I'm sorry that I said it like that. She was like, no, 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 I, know, I knew what you meant. We talked about it, whatever. And I was like, yeah, but it was so snarky. Like, I probably shouldn't have said it. She was like, it's fine, because after you signed my CD, I saw Andy Gullihorn across the foyer of the church. And I walked over to Andy, and I told him the same thing and said, hey, would you sign my CD and write down any advice? And he saw what I wrote, and right next to it, he wrote, write the bad ones too, Andy Gullihorn. And so the principle is that I think we're both right. Uh, yes, try really, really hard to, to do good work. Care about craft and excellence and beauty, but also none of those things are a reason to not do the thing at all. Like I think sometimes uh, we, uh, the intention trumps ex execution. That's one of the principles I talk about in the book. Like the audience will remember what you were trying to do long after they have forgotten what you actually did. Like, you all know what it's like. If you've done something, if you've spoken somewhere, done a sermon, it's the times when you feel like you really fell off the wagon and you did a terrible job that those, the people come out of the woodwork to say, thank you so much for, for, uh, for preaching today or doing your concert or whatever. Because I think what they, they see your heart better than they see your hands. What does adorning the dark mean? What does adorning the dark mean? Well, I mean, I think it's... Uh, I got the title from a benediction that I wrote years ago for an artist retreat thing that I was doing. Benediction isn't in the book, but that's where I got the phrase. The idea was that, that if you want to show, um, sorry, I'm, my brain is kind of scattered. I have been more ministered to uh, over the years by the people who are willing to admit their own darkness and to... Uh, not make a straw man out of the darkness in our own hearts or the darkness in the world, but to actually reckon with it and then to show that Jesus is stronger. Frederick Buechner was that way for me. Uh, when my life had fallen apart, my marriage was going through a tough season. I was plagued with a certain kind of doubting and, uh, and he helped me see that it was okay to ask those questions of the Lord. Um, that they were that our friendship is that way. That mm -hmm. we have we have talked about that. Um, it's the people who are willing to admit that the world is broken, and then go. Now what do we do? And uh, if you want to show uh, how beautiful a star is, then you need a night sky. And so, the truth of the matter is that we are all living in this 
broken world that is plagued with a lot of darkness. And we have the incredible opportunity to be the Rembrandts and to show how beautiful light is because of how dark the darkness is. And, um, and I don't think we do the truth much service by pretending like the darkness isn't real or that it isn't scary. But we have this great chance to like show how beautiful Christ is just by virtue of the fact that um, he strode out of the darkness at the resurrection. And, uh, and that is a part of the story. So, so eucatastrophe, do you guys know the word eucatastrophe? Um, so I'm seeing a, a few nods. Um, so it's a word that J.R.R. Tolkien coined and uh, in an essay called On Fairy Stories. And I'll just say this really briefly. A catastrophe is when everything is going great and then it all falls apart. EU catastrophe is, EU means good. A good catastrophe in a story is where in a story, everything is falling apart and getting worse and worse and worse and darker and darker and darker until the reader of the story thinks to themselves, there's no way this could end well, right? How could this story possibly be wrapped up in a way that would be satisfying? And then there's what the author calls, uh, what Tolkien calls the sudden joyous turn, the sudden joyous turn. And the Lord of the Rings is full of those, right? So the end of the Lord of the Rings is a good picture of it. The moment when Gandalf appears on the crest of the hill at the, and the two towers, uh, the white rider on the crest of the hill and the sun rises and stabs all the orcs in the eyes and, and then he rides the riders of Rohan into the battle. Like that moment where the unlooked for hope arrives and changes the story is eucatastrophe, the definition of it. Well, Tolkien said that the eucatastrophe of creation is the incarnation of Jesus. That is the sudden joyous turn in the story of creation. And that the eucatastrophe, the good catastrophe of the incarnation story is the resurrection. And those stories only work against the backdrop of brokenness and pain, right? So uh, the, there's a line in one of my songs where it says, um, the sun came up on the brightest day from the darkest night of all. The sun came up on the brightest day from the darkest night of all, and that's eucatastrophe, and, and that's what adorning the dark means. Mm. So. Well, that's a good place to take us to uh, one of the ultimate uh, texts on both creativity and on eucatastrophe, and that's in John chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, the darkness cannot, the darkness will not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The book is Adorning the Dark. Really commend it to all of you. Would you uh, join me in thanking Andrew Bruce and